because I had started coughing up blood that day. I uh, told him what was going on. He said, we need to get you down here to the ER immediately. Once I got to the ER, they ran tests, did what's called a CT scan. And in doing the CT scan, that's when they uncovered that I had pneumonia on both my lungs and they, that uh, there were other issues that needed to be addressed. And I immediately needed to be placed into the intensive care unit. Dr. Verone and his team, Dr. Gath, Joseph Gath, and them did a, a, an outstanding job of uh, treating me with a very unique and innovative uh, treatment that they called a COVID cocktail. And uh, he was so ill, uh, we were thinking even about putting a tube in his throat to allow him to breathe. We did not to do that. We elected to treat him with our cocktail. Uh, when, you know, and uh, he improved remarkably. I mean, his improvement was literally an improvement that I would say within two days, you could see a completely different man. And at that point in time, when we start looking at the Math Plus protocol, now, I mean, I have the ventilators just basically collecting dust in my, in my unit. There are a lot of politics going on on this illness. I don't care about politics. I actually have myself removed from all the political uh, situation because I know that there is a therapeutic intervention that makes a difference in patients. And that's a math plus protocol. And when we compare my patients, they are equally sick to my colleagues' patients. So it's not like I'm having a different kind of, uh, of patients. Uh, for me, all those things work. Uh, and so uh, I'm so grateful that they saved my life. Jeff is the reason why I went to medical school. I mean, this is the best payment I can have as a physician. It's gratifying. You see a man that, you know, doesn't look too good and you are concerned that he may end up dead and he walks out of the hospital in, in one piece and then actually you become his friend. I mean, that to me is the very best payment I could ever have. I have a therapeutic intervention that work on, on, on Mr. Boney and I am going to spread the word on this because I'm hoping that other people do the same thing that we're doing. And so it just started from there. He got started on medications. We thought he was going to bounce back. He didn't seem that sick at that time. But it was not until Tuesday that he really took a big turn and we ended up checking him into the emergency room. And that's where he got admitted. I was having a hard time breathing. Cough was getting worse. It was, uh, it was just getting more and more difficult. Starting to get a little bit fatigued. They were giving me the numbers. I could see he was just getting progressively worse. I could see that they were getting worried. He had a really bad night Saturday night. I honestly thought we were going to lose him. That's when the PA who's been treating over 3,000 patients locally told me about the Math Plus protocol. I fought with the doctors for five days telling them about this and that's when I got the air ambulance myself and was able to get him over here quickly. The CAT scanner right when he arrived was horrific. I mean they showed me and I was just like oh my goodness this the prognosis was, was not good. They were doing nothing. They were treating him with homeopathic doses of steroids. Anemic, tiny, six milligrams of dexamethasone. Like, really? Immediately once I got on the medication, I began to turn. The next day, great. And I can tell you today, I feel 100% better. They have me on ivermectin, the cellumedrol, the high-dose vitamin C. I got here on Tuesday, and you can do the math today, Saturday. And 
night and day. He looks amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Look at this. Daddy's getting better. Look at this. Amazing, right? In four days. Look at how amazing. Isn't that a miracle, right? It's a real thing. We see it every day. He thinks it's a miracle. I think it's just science. I mean, maybe it's just semantics, but it's the truth. We had a call. They were going to admit her to the ICU. All we heard was, it's not good. She's in bad shape and she's going to be here probably four weeks on a ventilator if she recovers at all. My wife's mother, she had been seeing Dr. Corey's research information, sent it to my wife and said, Michael needs to get his mom this. We jumped on that, looked at it, did the research, read his papers, saw his testimony before Senate and demanded that the ICU give it to her. The initial request was, no, we don't, we don't experiment on patients. And we just said, we'll sign whatever waiver you want. We don't hold you responsible, but we want her to have this. The doctor made the call and called us back in 15 minutes. And he said, we'll give her one dose. Less than 48 hours, mom is taken off of the ventilator. She was stable enough to move from the ICU. It was nothing short of miraculous. Three, four days after her first dose of ivermectin, her only dose, she's not doing well called and said, I need to talk to the attending. We need more doses of ivermectin. They said, no. We called and they said, no more doses. We're not going to experiment on patients and it's not approved for the treatment. I called the lawyer. I called Ralph. We brought the family in, prepared legal papers to have to bring a lawsuit against the hospital. In the meantime, her doctor, Dr. Scavani, had provided us with a letter. Dr. Scavani was willing to sign a letter stating that she should have the ivermectin. The court, based on all of that information, ordered that the hospital provide her with the ivermectin. The hospital fought the court order. Finally, the judge makes the decision that the family physician agrees to give it to her, orders it, the hospital must administer it. She got three more doses and she turned around. You're an 80 year old woman, you're doing so poorly, you have to have a ventilator breathe for you. And then five days later, you're not on a ventilator anymore. What else was there? What changed? And the only thing that we can point to was our prayer, obviously, but the dosage of ivermectin. I wish they would have gave it to her when they found out she had COVID, when she tested positive. It's easier to stay healthy than it is to get healthy. And my mother's gonna be in rehab for a month because she didn't have it earlier. We didn't know. Grateful for Dr. Corey and the work that his team has put together and it's had an impact in saving her life. I actually knew what it was because of the symptoms. I came upstairs my usual speed and I got to the kitchen and I passed out right on the kitchen floor. Right away, they admitted me into the hospital. And that's when I realized that this is pretty serious. I just kind of figured once he got into the hospital, he would be in there for a couple days on oxygen and be right out because he's really healthy. I mean, he went rapidly downhill. My dad just, started nosediving. 
The doctor was pretty confident that my dad was not going to survive. I had an idea that, you know, there was a chance that my dad was going to go on a ventilator that night. And I knew that people aren't being saved going on the ventilator. I called the doctor like at 9.30 at night. And it was at that time that I asked him about ivermectin for the first time. Me and two of my siblings and one of my cousins had seen Dr. Corey in Senate hearings and seen some videos and stuff. So we didn't know as much as I wish that we would have. The doctor said, you know, they've been having really good results with it. There's been a lot of good studies going through. I don't know why they're not pushing it through as a COVID treatment. The doctor came in that afternoon and did his exam. And I said, if this was your dad, would you give it to him? And he looked me in the eye and he said, yes. He said, your dad's gonna die and you need to do everything you can to save him. As soon as I got the ivermectin, I just started turning around. I could tell the first dose was changing how I felt. The second dose, I could feel a mental relief that I was gonna be all right. We gave my dad the second dose on December 17th. He started turning around on the 18th and he needed less and less oxygen every day. Four days later, he was discharged from the hospital on two liters of oxygen. It was the ivermectin that did it. There's just no doubt in my mind because to go from where I was to going back out, it's a miracle. I knew he was gonna turn around with it. I had, I had that much faith. They had lost every single person they put on a ventilator. They hadn't saved anybody as far progressed as my dad. I'm just so thankful for Dr. Corey and all the other doctors and all the research that they have done to help save my dad's life. What you have just witnessed is a video that is going to court. It is a very unusual case of patients who were critically ill, who were likely dying of COVID-19, and the FLCCC's Dr. Joseph Verone, who saved so many lives during this pandemic over the past 18 months down in Houston, will be telling a judge in Norfolk, Virginia, through that video, just how safe, inexpensive, off-label, FDA-approved medicines prescribed by top, top doctors in intensive care units saved their lives. So why tell this to a judge? Why would an expert critical care physician, a top professor and clinician, in this case, Dr. Paul Merrick, who is also one of the most highly published authors of medical papers, uh, whose studies are cited by doctors all over the world, why would he have to go to court to beg a judge to allow him to use the medicines that he believes, well, I'd say that he knows can save lives. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the Creative Director of the FLCCC Alliance. And tonight, we have Dr. Paul Merrick with us to tell us why late yesterday he filed a lawsuit against the hospital in which he practices and what he hopes to gain from it. We will also have with us attorneys Fred Taylor, the Virginia lawyer, a litigator who filed the case, and Stephen Thames, a litigator who is also the general counsel of the FLCCC Alliance, to help us understand the law. And if we're lucky, Dr. Pierre Corey may pop in from time to time to join us if he can. He's working in an ICU tonight, so he could be very busy there. 
And uh, I can see that he is already, but we'll, we'll probably catch him at some point later. We'll take questions at the end, but we're going to ask you to focus the questions on the lawsuit while we have the lawyers with us. And we do have one, I think, that can stay to the end. Um, and then next week we can talk more about treating patients, but Paul Merrick will be with us and perhaps Dr. Corey, and we'll, we'll get to as much as we can. But first, let's get right into this whole question. Paul, why, why was it necessary to go to court to treat patients? What happened? Yeah, so um, this lawsuit is about my, my colleagues and myself being given the right to treat patients to give them uh, the effective treatment that they need at the bedside in the time-honored fashion that we've done for, for decades. Um, the physician at the bedside is the one that's best suited to look after the patient, to make decisions about patient care. That's, that's the fundamentals of medicine. What happened in this instance is that the hospital and the bureaucrats stepped in and basically um, mandated what treatment we can and cannot give. And this was uh, specifically for, um, for COVID. So I'm gonna share my screen. So this is, this is what happened was um, on the uh, 6th of October, uh, Dr. Ted Bundy from uh, the Hospital Quality sent out this memo, basically um, saying that we can use remdesivir, which as we know is a, a drug which is ineffective and toxic. We could use tocilizumab, which is an ineffective drug. Uh, corticosteroids, they talk about dexamethasone. But then this is where the problem came. Um, they added a do not endorse section, which includes medications that can cause harm and its efficacy and safety is not supported in peer review published RCTs. These medications will not be verified or dispensed for the prevention or treatment of COVID. And this included ivermectin, becalutamide, etoposide, fluvoxamine, dutesteride, and finasteride. These medications should only be prescribed if the patient is enrolled in a clinical trial. In addition, they added ascorbic acid is not endorsed for the prevention or treatment of COVID or sepsis or septic shock. So as you can see, they were outlawing, or the hospital was outlawing, um, these medications, which are really part of the MATH Plus protocol, ivermectin, picolutamide, fluvoxamine, dutesteride, and finasteride. And I should add that the um, assertion that these drugs are not supported by peer-reviewed published RCTs and their efficacy and safety have not been determined is completely and utterly false. Uh, most, of these most of these drugs have been proven to be safe and effective in randomized controlled trials and indeed in peer-reviewed publications. Uh, we just need to look at fluvoxamine, which has been published in JAMA and The Lancet, two of the, most, the leading uh, medical journals in the world. 
and how one could possibly say that the efficacy and safety is not supported by peer-reviewed published RCTs is truly a, an astonishing lie. And these, obviously- uh, I was um, just gonna say, these are the medications that are in the Math Plus protocol that you've used, correct? Yes, yeah, so you know, this is the Math Plus protocol. You can see we use methylprednisolone and we do not use dexamethasone. We use ascorbic acid or uh, vitamin C, which was not endorsed by the hospital. And as you can see, we use ivermectin and dual and androgen therapy. So these medications were basically outlawed by the hospital. So um, basically tied my hands when I was rounding in the ICU. Uh, so patients come to the ICU because they failed treatment on the floor. So um, by necessity, they treat it on the floor. Mostly they get um, the treatment they get on the floor is remdesivir and dexamethasone. And once they failed, they've clearly failed and you have to escalate therapy. And that's what we do when the patient's admitted to the ICU. We escalate care and we escalate care by giving them high-dose methylprednisolone ascorbic acid, and then we add these other medications. What happened was I was not allowed to use these medications, so I was not allowed to escalate care. So I watched idly by as my patients, these were my patients, I was the attending of record. I watched helplessly as these patients progressed, got progressively worse, and they died. It was a awful, harrowing experience that I do not want to go through ever again in my life. I was the bedside physician. I was in charge of looking after the patient the, the, uh, and I was denied the, my absolute duty to do the best for the patient that I could and prescribe safe FDA approved medications that have shown to be safe <laughs> and effective for the treatment of COVID. And basically this um, memorandum from uh, Joe Bundy and Centaura is what basically precipitated this um, lawsuit because it's unheard of in, in modern medicine that hospitals and hospital bureaucrats dictate specifically how doctors treat patients. This, this is a relationship between the patient and the doctor. It's a fundamental part of medicine. And here the hospital and the hospital bureaucrats had, had eroded this very sacred uh, treatise between the patient and the physician. And it put me in an untenable situation. So this is not about financial reward. This is not about my job. This is about allowing physicians like myself across the country to do what physicians do, to prescribe medications at the bedside for what they, the medications they believe are most effective for their patient. And we should recognize that in hospitals, up to about 30% of medications are used off-label every single day. And it's just part of regular medical care. 
So that's an introduction to this awful saga. So all you really want is to be able to use the medicines that you've used before that worked. Yes, so I was, uh, up until this um, ban, which is a ban, I used these medications effectively on my patients. Um, not all patients are treated the same. Um, obviously, you know, that, that's medicine. You assess the patient, you assess the severity. The clinician at the bedside decides on the most appropriate course of action and medications. And I had used all of these medications alone or combination up until that point very effectively. And then suddenly my hands were tied. Uh, I was no longer be able to practice medicine. All I could use was remdesivir, which we know is a toxic medication which does not improve the outcome of patients with COVID. We know this categorically and definitively. And dexamethasone low dose is ineffective. So somehow I can, it's okay to use those drugs, but medications which have been proven to be safe and effective for the treatment of COVID, I was denied um, access to order those for my patients. Let's bring in the lawyer now. I know Fred Taylor has to leave us fairly soon. So I, you're the one who filed the case in Virginia. You're the Virginian and everybody's gonna hear that in your voice. What, what can be gained? What, what are the chances of uh, getting the medicines back to the doctor in this case? Good evening, Betsy. I'm I'm very you know honored to be here to join with you all tonight, and, and really to to be here uh, to join with Dr. Merrick. And you know my my hats off to him um, for him stepping up because this isn't about Dr. Merrick. He has entirely made this about his patients. And um, when I when I came into this and was asked to assist, you know I'll be the first to say I don't have a medical background. I'm not a doctor. I've learned so much and the root of this story and the root of this case to kind of get to your answer is this is about patient access to information and then more importantly, patient access to treatment. And so what we've asked, uh, what we filed yesterday in the Norfolk Circuit Court um, is for the Circuit Court to enjoin, which means basically stop the Centera healthcare system from this prohibition and to let let number one, let doctors be doctors and to do their jobs. Dr. Merrick pointed it out very fundamentally. The, the relationship that we have um, as patients with our doctors is a right that cannot be taken away. And from the patient side, you have that right. We call it informed consent to know the who, what, when, where, and why of your medical treatment to be given options, to be given options for alternative treatment. Um, and likewise, that doctor, whether it's Dr. Merrick or anyone else, has a duty as part of their Hippocratic oath to be able to give their patient information. And from there, for the patient to make a decision, to make that informed decision of what type of treatment they will or will not receive. They could choose not to. But the key is getting that information. And that's what concerns me the most about the Sentara prohibition is it's not Sentara just saying, you know, this is our opinion on this, or maybe another doctor will tell you something different. They simply don't want it to be talked about. They do not even want to give you as a patient the opportunity to get that information. And that's what's most troubling at all. And I hope 
will be very troubling to a judge when a judge hears what's going on here. I fundamentally believe it flies in the face of not only Virginia law, but federal law that has been very clear about a patient's right to decide the treatment that they receive. What happens next? So um, filed yesterday, we're set for uh, what's kind of considered an emergency hearing, which will occur next week, next Thursday in the Norfolk Circuit Court. Um, and we're going to be asking, you know, immediately of the judge to step in and do what, you know, Sentara should have done anyway, which is not allow this to happen. I see Dr. Corey is with us, so happily has a few minutes. Uh, anything you'd like, while well, we've got you here, anything you'd like to add about what you see and what's happening? Yeah, no, I'm just... <clears throat> I just want to say, I support, you know, it's, it's, it's been really hard hearing Paul and what he had to go through. That's number one. Uh, number two, I, I can't stay for a long time. I'm, I'm in the middle of a number of things. But, you know, just for people listening, they need to understand how unprecedented this is. So <clears throat> in my career, I've never been able to not prescribe a medicine outside some sort of severe cost restriction. So there are some medicines that are so expensive that hospitals seek to uh, control because, uh, you know, doctors, they use lots of medicines and they can bankrupt hospitals with some of the more expensive stuff. So there's medicines which they'll restrict and that you have to ask for permission to use in certain clinical circumstances. But, but to, as a rule, um, restrict or outlaw, I'm going to use the word outlaw, they suddenly make it illegal to prescribe uh, not just one, but a whole host of cheap, safe, repurposed drugs, all of whom have strong amount of studies, observational or randomized to support use. Um, it, it's literally unconscionable, meaning any patient who heard of this that they could, their doctor couldn't use five or six really safe medicines to try to help them when they're when you're dealing with literally a deadly disease of COVID, which is what happens in the hospital. It, it's it should it should frighten everybody. Steve? I'm sorry, I got to go. Sure, Steve uh, Thames, what do you see about this? Could this lead to help for doctors everywhere if if uh, Dr. Uh, Merrick wins this? Say that again, Betsy, I'm having some connection problems. Oh, I'm sorry. Can this be broadened? If, if we're lucky enough, if, if the judge sees what uh, Paul Merrick is saying to be true and, and in the best interest of patient care, uh, is, can this be expanded to the doctors everywhere? Because there are other doctors who are experiencing similar problems of not being able to get medicines. Certainly ivermectin we know about. Are you able to hear? I have a feeling we've lost Steve. I think we have a bad connection. I'll go back to you, Fred. How are, uh, can you add anything on that? I think it absolutely should. And I think um, Dr. Corey's statement about how shocked he was that, you know, with, with connection, Betsy. I'm sorry. Like Steve's trying to join us again. He's trying to come back in. There he is. Can you, can you hear us? I have, we have a bad connection, unfortunately. I think we'll have to go back to uh, Fred to get that answer. And I know you're gonna be leaving us soon. So anyway. I do think it's important. And I think, you know, it's not just what we're dealing with today for COVID. It goes to the very heart again of the relationship between doctor and patient. And 
you know, makes me question, you know, if, if this is allowed to occur, you know, how much further is this going to be taken? One of the things we point out in the lawsuit, you know, the, the, the relationship between doctor and patient is important. It, it's not, though, the relationship between patient and hospital. And it's not the hospital that decides, you know, how I'm going to advise you and, you know, gives you information concerning your unique circumstance. That shouldn't be the standard. It's never been the standard. And so if this suit needs to serve as a reminder of the importance of that relationship, I do believe it will continue to grow as other hospitals see, you know, we cannot get in the middle of that clear line between patient and doctor. So yes, I must agree with Fred. I mean, we hear from across the country how healthcare systems are restricting the use of various medications for COVID. And I'm not sure why COVID has brought this out because doctors have used off-label drugs for, for decades and no one has batted an eye. But I think the reason is that these are cheap repurposed drugs that the powers that be do not want us to use. They want us to use remdesivir, which I come back to again, which costs $3,000 a course. They want us to use expensive monoclonal antibodies. So I think there are some very sinister motivations behind all of this. Um, these are all, the drugs we're using are all repurposed, uh, cheap drugs that are very safe, but nobody's gonna make a fortune of money selling them. And I think that's where the kicker is. It, it competes with the more expensive designer drugs that are coming out from Merck and Pfizer. They do not like this. This is competition for them. These are effective cheap drugs and that does not, that's a difficult pull to swallow. So this, is, this, is, this has become a COVID issue. Um, and I think it's related to conflicts of interest and financial incentives and basically the patient gets left behind and my focus and most of my colleagues focus is to do the very best they can for the patient in front of them that's their hippocratic duty it's your patient you're responsible for that patient and you have the absolute duty and right to do the best you can for that very patient and you can imagine the absolute horror that I was placed in. I had to look after patients in whom I was literally handcuffed. I was handcuffed. I could not do for my patients that which I needed to do. And unfortunately, I believe it compromised the patient's outcome and led to their death. And that is shocking. This should never happen. A physician should never have to endure what I endured because I had to watch helplessly as these poor patients died and there was nothing I could do because the healthcare system I worked for had banned me using the medications I so desperately needed to use. That is shocking. It's absolutely shocking for anyone to hear. Steve, can you, are you with us now? Can you comment uh, on anything uh, 
that we were talking about before about what this means for doctors yes. everywhere? Oh, I, th I think his audio is just not working. And this is, this is unfortunate. So um, hopefully we can get Steve back at some point. And Fred, hopefully you don't have to run out the door so quickly. Um, what is likely to happen in this case? You're strictly seeking an injunction, but you have, is it Virginia law that is particularly helpful? Or is this something that could conceivably be used everywhere else? Yeah, so at least insofar as what, what our action is, it's coming in the Virginia state courts. And so obviously any decision would really only affect Virginia. But I think it should, you know, regardless of what happens, and obviously we're very optimistic that the law is on our side and what the outcome should be. But I, I think this should be a warning and an example for places across the country, again, to remind these hospitals of their, their duty to the patient. And, you know, what, what I think is important is the hospital should be there encouraging these doctors and assisting these doctors in any way to ease their jobs up. Um, you know, we, we, we hear all the time about, you know, the importance of uh, assisting our frontline workers. You know, this shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening to Dr. Merrick. It shouldn't be happening to other physicians across the country. And so I hope the suit reminds them of the importance of that. You know, likewise, when we start looking at the, the patient side of this, I hope that this case will help to better educate patients. Um, and hopefully you won't become a patient, but I hope to educate all of us that there are steps that you can take on the front end to be able to say, you know, I do want a certain course of treatment or I don't want a certain course of treatment. And to articulate that now early on before it's too late to your, whether it's your primary care provider, whether it's to a significant other, you know, to be able to, to go ahead and get that out there. And so, you know, it's really, it's about education and the best way you know, that we lead to that is through information. And that's what Dr. Merrick's suit hopes to entail, to guarantee that if you're faced with that situation, you have that access to the information you need to make the best decision for you. So Fred, Fred raises a really important point. You know, when people think about advanced directives, they think about things they don't want. You know, they don't want CPR, they don't want to be put on a ventilator, they don't want dialysis, but they don't really think of things they actually want. And patients have the right to refuse therapy, but at the same time, they have the right to ask for therapy that they want, that is reasonable and appropriate and, you know, medically justified. So, you know, what we were encouraging is people to think about having a COVID advanced directives you know god forbid you should get COVID, which we hope will never happen but it would it may happen to some of you that you think about what kind of treatments you actually want and we are developing a math plus advanced directive so that people can um, volunteer their their preferences while they while they are well and healthy and can make an informed decision. So, I mean, patients can decide both the treatment they don't want 
and the treatment they do want, as long as this would give them the realm of medical reasonable reasonableness. Can that um, really work? Can can that force the hospitals to treat you? Say you want to have the ivermectin given to you if you're uh, suffering from this. Uh, can can you force them that way? Well, ask anyone. Well, yes. Well, that's what we're testing. You know, Fred can maybe answer. So the question is, is that patients should be able to, with consultation with their physician. So this is a patient-physician decision. If the patient requests it and the physician thinks it's reasonable, then that's a decision they make together. And the patient should be able to be prescribed ivermectin. It's as simple as that. Uh, Fred, would you agree? Absolutely. And, and the Supreme Court has, you know, held that for a number of years. There's a, a case really exactly um, on point, Doe versus Bolton, which is a U.S. Supreme Court 1970s um, era decision. And there is a, a key and fundamental right to receive, you know, that medical care. And I think it's even more supported when you have already articulated that through something like an advanced directive, but you know, but, we, we look at advanced directives as you know that being a document that we use when you're no longer you know able to make a decision. You know, it's equally as important for that person who is you know there in a hospital who's listening to the to the advice of their physician uh, about options that they may have to be able to say yes, I do want a certain course of treatment. And in my opinion, the hospital is bound to respect that. Um, and it's unfortunate, again, that we're having to take this to court to, you know, prove or establish what I have always believed to be well-settled law on the legal side, but more importantly, well-settled ethical and principles on the medical side that both Dr. Merrick and Dr. Corey have spoke of tonight. And, and I'll, I'll leave you all with that. I do have to cut out. It has been a pleasure and I look forward uh, to hopefully in the next week delivering some good news to everyone. Well, thank you and good luck in court. And we're delighted that we've got, uh, we, we've got uh, Pierre back with us for at least a few minutes or hope, uh, hope all is going well in the hospital there. Um, and so I do wanna yeah. thank Fred and his team because obviously this is a gigantic undertaking. You know, we're taking on a massive healthcare corporation that is spineless and uh, will dig its teeth in. And we do need, you know, reliable, brave lawyers that can help us navigate this awful system. And we're now losing Dr. Corey. Well, we're, it's a busy night. What can we say? Let's go back to Paul, because this has been, um, it's been very difficult for you. Uh, you know, there is, I have to ask you one tough question, because watching Twitter all day long as this was filed, we're seeing complaints coming in from the presumably people on the other side who are saying, oh, you don't have the, we can't prove with the numbers that the math plus is saving all of these people. Uh, and where is that going? And they're saying, oh, but the Math Plus uh, protocol was um, uh, retracted in a paper. What does all of that mean? And I think you, you can clarify that. Yes. Yeah, so it, it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a, or a mathematician to figure out 
that if you use ivermectin alone, it decreases mortality. If you use fluvoxamine alone, it decreases mortality. If you use antiandrogen therapy alone, it decreases mortality. If you use vitamin C alone, it decreases mortality. So these, if you use melatonin, it decreases mortality. Um, if you use a statin, it decreases mortality. So these are well-designed, randomized, and observational studies showing independently these drugs improve mortality. So it's obvious if you combine them together, the effects are going to be additive or synergistic. I mean, it's just obvious. So to claim that these drugs do not improve the outcome is absurd. Um, these drugs, each and every one of them in themselves, have been shown to improve mortality. So obviously, what we do is the sicker the patient, we just pile on more and more therapy to be more aggressive. Now, why was our paper retracted? Well, it was retracted by the very healthcare, it was forced to be retracted by the journal, by the very healthcare institution that has now banned me from practicing. So the healthcare system didn't like our paper, so they strong-armed the journal, they strong-armed the journal and made the journal retract the paper because they did not like the paper that we wrote. This was a review paper. It had many different sections. It reviewed the um, fundamental uh, reasoning of using MathPlus. There was a tiny section in the paper which referenced the outcome of data from Centaur Norfolk General Hospital. They did not like this data, so they strong-armed the journal and made the journal retract the paper. So we know what we're up against. We know that NIH, CDC, uh, WHO, these are all captured agencies that are controlled by Big Pharma. And it seems that these hospitals have the same kind of influence and power and can do run, you know, run amok and do what they want to do to further their own selfish aims. So that's that's un the unfortunate story. And it, it's unfortunate that this retraction should happen at this very same time that we've filed the lawsuit. It's probably no coincidence. And I should add, I should add the data we used, we published in the paper was personally given to me. The mortality data was given to me by the chief medical officer. We were then accused of fabricating data and providing inaccurate data. So- That they gave to you. This is data they gave to us. The problem was is the data they gave to us was at a particular point in time. So 28 day mortality. It wasn't the final mortality, which is the problem with COVID and many other diseases is you can't tell what's gonna happen in the future because you still have patients who are hospitalized and their outcome has not been determined. So there, obviously there will be a percentage of patients who will die after you've closed the study. And so it did happen. The mortality went from 6.1% 6 to 10%. So big deal. Um, 
with follow-up, it increased to 10%, which is still a remarkably low figure. We know the hospital mortality across the world sits at around 20%. So our mortality corrected was 10%. And we were quite happy to make that correction. But the journal was strong-armed by the healthcare system, despite Dr. Corey's very valiant attempts to try and reason with them rationally, scientifically, they would not hear of it. They were strong-armed and the paper was withdrawn. So be it, it's just part of the game that we have to play. You look at all the, the number of uh, papers on repurposed drugs. That's where this all comes down to. Big industry, big pharma, the NIH, the CDC, the WHO do not like repurposed drugs. This is all about repurposed drugs because there's uh, not a lot of money to make in them. You know, as we said, um, remdesivir, which is a completely ineffective drug, is the standard of care in this country. It costs $3,000 a course. Almost every single patient admitted to hospital gets this toxic medication at $3,000 a shot, yet ivermectin, which has been shown to reduce mortality and costs cents to pennies, is somehow a toxic drug which you can't use. So unfortunately, COVID has turned the world upside down and has brought out the worst in humanity. Well, let's see, maybe you can get it righted. Let's see what happens in court because you'll be telling all of this to the judge and uh, we have some really good questions. I think it's time to go there. Uh, and hopefully Steve can jump in on some of the answers that re relate to the legal questions. So let's see what happens. Uh, Aaron Hertzberg wants to know, do you intend to use the discovery process with a specific aim to expose the hospital administrators? Well, hmm. it, it's a lawsuit. So um, certainly we would use every right open to us um, it, you know, our, our chief aim in this lawsuit is simply to get uh, Dr. Merrick the right to treat his patients and get the patients their right to have the treatment that is due them. Can you still hear me, Betsy? We can hear you. Uh, you're, you okay. We can see you also in a still, but it's just so good to, to hear you. So very good, Steve. Thank you. We have a lawyer on the line, and that's wonderful. Um, all right, um, Ralph Carter wants to know, what are the comparative in-hospital COVID mortality data for Math Plus versus the standard treatment? Yeah, so this is where it becomes very controversial because um, at my hospital, not all patients get Math Plus. So, you know, I am one of the few practitioners or only practitioners that uses the full Math Plus. So it gets diluted out. And you know, often I inherit patients that have been treated differently. So it's very difficult at my hospital, but probably the best example is, uh, and you know, Dr. Verone, who, who runs the hospital, nobody tells him what to do. He uses the Math Plus protocol exclusively, and he has really good data. So the mortality in his hospital has gone from about 4.1% at the beginning with the first variant to about 8 to 10%. So um, that's really a good example. 
we know the world mortality, both in the US and in um, Europe is about 20%. So I do have soft data, which would suggest that under my care, the mortality falls by about 50%. Now, um, obviously that's kind of confidential data and they will probably contest the data because they don't want to hear the data or see the data. But it's my impression that in my hands, um, I can reduce the mortality by about 50%. What I can tell you is that the week I was in the ICU with my hands tied, my mortality was 100%. Every single patient died. And that has never happened to me. So um, uh, just from my own experience, I can tell you that math works. It turns around patients. But what's really important is the timing. And I think this is critical for COVID in general, that when people become symptomatic, you need to treat, start treatment early. And we've said this over and over again. You need to start treatment early. And the same thing happens with math plus is that it needs to, when patients start developing pulmonary signs and shortness of breath, you need to start math plus early. The problem that often faces me in the ICU is that patients get sick, they're on the floor, they get remdesivir and dexamethasone, which doesn't work, and then they get admitted to the ICU in a near terminal state. And clearly, once they're so advanced, um, it becomes impossible to reverse the treatment. So that's why it becomes really difficult because you know I will use math plus, but often it's much too late in patients whom are unlikely to survive. But I do what I have to do. I try my best. I give them every shot I can. It's my duty to try everything I can do to try and save the patient's life. And you know, at least if the Patient, you know, if the patient passes away, at least we can be reassured that we tried every single thing possible, that no stone was left unturned. Um, and that's why it's very difficult, and I'm sure the other side is going to attack us relentlessly. But unfortunately, these are people that don't look after COVID. Um, you know, it's very easy to sit behind a desk and uh, make these proclamations. You know, Pierre and myself and Joseph and thousands of doctors across the country and the world actually look after COVID. They understand COVID. And those are the people that should make the decisions how to treat COVID. Unfortunately, Dr. Fauci has never treated a COVID patient in his life. And yet he is the COVID czar who tells everybody how to treat COVID. It's completely and utterly absurd. We have another question from Diana Mara Henry, who says, do you have an advanced healthcare directive in case of hospitalization for COVID? Now we mentioned this earlier that she says that we can have notarized and take with us to be treated with the Math Plus protocol. How, how close are we to having something like that? Yeah, maybe Kelly can type in, we're working on it. So as part of this um, lawsuit, we actually have an advanced directive we have uh, 20 people in random volunteers in the state of Virginia who have signed this advanced directive 
directing what care they would want should they get COVID. And this is going to be presented to the judge, and I suppose the judge will decide. You know, many of these are legal wranglings that us mere doctors don't really understand. You know, we are just country bumpkin doctors who try our best at the bedside to do for our patients. So these very smart lawyers are going to make all these uh, arguments uh, on our behalf. Somehow I don't think of you as a country bumpkin, but anyway, we have, oh, here's a good question from Mary Diaz. Is there a fund for legal fees? Oh, how nice. So obviously, you know, this is not a cheap exercise. Uh, fortunately, you know, this is coming out of um, FLCC money and some very kind donors, but obviously donations are always welcome. And no matter what the size of the donation, because I think people who donate, donate from their heart because they believe in what we're doing. And what we're doing is we trying to save humanity from itself. And everything, you know, everything helps. Uh, we're a small little group of people, but I think we work really well together to try and do the best we can to correct this terrible, terrible, terrible plague we're going through. We have a question from Dr. Morris. Uh, can hospitals be held liable for banning treatments that could have saved their patients according to the opinion of their own doctors? And I have to say, I was, I was thinking of this too, as you were speaking saying, oh my goodness, the families of those patients are just gonna wanna jump on this and say, Dr. Merrick, be my witness. You, you said that you could have potentially saved my father, mother, loved one. I mean, uh, that sounds like a, a natural that families would, would wanna know. Yes, obviously there are HIPAA restrictions. So, you know, I have to be careful what I can tell families, but surely, you know, families have the right to know what therapy the, their loved one received and didn't receive. And clearly they have the option to take whatever action they may think is appropriate. And Bruce Felber wants to know, can we as medical professionals send letters to the court or to the judge in support of your case? I'm asking for those of us who know ivermectin works. We can flood the court with letters of support. <laughs> I mean, personally, I'm so grateful for people who, who offer their support and who offer to support us. Um, you know, the, the legality and the logistics of it, I'm not sure. You know, I think Kelly can perhaps help us sort that out. And um, maybe she can post this on, on the website is that if people want to voice their support, how they can do that. Um, I mean, obviously it's very important to us and we, you know, it's very touching and it's heartwarming that we know that the people who support us, but I think we need to speak with a loud voice so that people hear what we have to say, because I think, you know, what happens in the court is important, but I think the court of public opinion is probably even more important. And people's voices need to be heard because I think that's the only way we're gonna correct this terrible wrong 
it's a terrible wrong that's become so pervasive. And I think it has to be a ground roots effort for people to voice their, their, um, their concern, their uh, shock, their dismay, uh, their, their abhorrence to what's happening. So, um, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, we can figure that out. You know, I don't want to give incorrect advice. You know, maybe it's not a good thing to, to email the judge. I don't know. But, you know, we will, we will inquire as to what avenue people can uh, use to support us. We can also put all of this on the, on the website. We, I, I should add to that. Uh, we do have a critical updates uh, on the lawsuit uh, section that's on the front page now, the home page of the website, which is www.flccc.net. And we will put information on that as we have it to let you know what's happening and what you what you can do, uh, because that's a really good question and a, and a really good uh, point of whether that kind of support will will help. Unfortunately, we had uh, the difficulty with Steve with uh, you know the the connection. He's on the West Coast, and that's uh, I guess the long distance whatever uh, the connection problem, but. Um, We'll, we will be on the case and we will let you know. The other problem that you mentioned, uh, Paul, is of course, letting people know what's going on. We have obviously not been picked up uh, by a lot of major media. And a lot of major media seems to only be spouting the position that is coming from the medical authorities who say they don't want you to use repurposed drugs. And so unfortunately, the doctors are not getting heard. So those people who want to help, those people who are, those of you who are listening, you can email your friends, you can send out the email that you saw about this, and this program will be recorded, it is being recorded, it will be posted tomorrow. Uh, and you'll be able to share that with other people to say, hey, folks, look what's going on and listen to this. And of course, we'll have the updates. We have another question from David Schoenbrunn, who says, do you know if the hospital issued a gag order on this? Um, they haven't gagged me yet, so I'm still talking. Um, we'll have to follow what they do. Um, you know, it is going to be interesting. You know, I think you know, it's, it's obviously a uh, extremely stressful thing to go through, but I think, you know, we have to stand up for the rights of doctors and patients. And I think we have to take medicine back because I think big business and big bureaucracy have eroded the real fundamentals of medicine. Um, doctors should be in charge. We shouldn't be told how to practice medicine by bureaucrats, by governmental agencies. They've basically eroded the fundamental concepts of patient-physician relationship and our Hippocratic duty. Um, so I think we need to spread the word. And for those who haven't seen, um, you can actually download the uh, legal pleadings from the website. Uh, very, very smart lawyers who have you know, articulated the law very clearly and I'm sure people will find it interesting. And you can, you know, spread that to your friends and relatives and whoever. 
We have a last question, which is really as much a statement from Aura Sylvan, who says, we are with you, Dr. Merrick. We want you to know this and how much we appreciate your willingness to fight for us. What can we do to support this brave action you have taken? Yeah, so I suppose the two is, the first thing is to help you make a donation. The second thing is we're going to figure out how people can help us. Um, so the one thing obviously is we're working on a math plus events directive, which people should be able to download and fill it in. It may need customization in different states, but I'm sure that the concept will apply. Basically patients have the right to decide what kind of treatment they want. And it doesn't matter what state they're in. I think that it should have some degree of validity. And uh, Betsy and Joyce and Kelly will work out a way that people can express their horror at this awful situation. Thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, Paul and and uh, Fred, who was with us as long as he could be, and and Steve. We thank you, we, even though unfortunately we had a bad connection. But you're with us all the time, and we'll be able to help us post things on the website. And of course, Pierre, who's helping patients tonight in an ICU, but who was with us at least for a bit, uh, and who is always with us, uh, guiding us all, along with Paul and Joe and and uh, the rest of the doctors who are on the FLCCC Alliance. And it's a global alliance. We have, we have good advice coming from all over the world, from doctors who know that the treatments, the protocols that have been put together work and have saved lives. Um, that's all that we do have time for tonight. Now, if we didn't get to your question, we're going to be back again next week, where we'll open it up and have more on direct medical questions. Uh, and same time, same station. And meanwhile, just a few reminders. Um, as I said, we are going to have critical updates on this lawsuit on the website, flccc.net. So you can catch the latest and how you can help and what you need to know about how it's going. Um, it'll be there. Uh, we also have the treatment protocols, the early treatment protocol, which is key for prevention and early treatment. They are there. That's the iMask Plus. Uh, we're going to be working on, as, as Paul said, this advanced directive. Great idea. So we'll let you know what's happening there. Um, we have our just-in-case COVID kit on the website. That's right there, too. That's important. So all of the medicines that are handy to have around, uh, just in case you get infected. And also, they have links to Nurse Christina's how-to videos of how to use the povidone iodine and mix it and buy it and all that good stuff. Um, doctors and patients uh, who are having trouble getting your prescriptions filled, our pharmacies page has been greatly improved in the last week. You now can, can search much better to find out what pharmacists will serve your area. So you can do that. And we also remember we have our overcoming pharmacy barriers advice sheet that you can take with you if you get questions and tells you how to talk to the pharmacist who might be giving you a hard time. Uh, the doctors got a lot of good advice in there. Well, this is all on the website. And the only thing you have to remember is that we have this list of doctors who will prescribe ivermectin. We have the list of pharmacies. That's just to help you. We're not in business 
with these folks. So, you know, you have to be a good consumer. You have to call them and you have to ask what they're going to charge you and how long it might take to get the medicine to you. You have to do all that yourself. But this is to give you a start. Um, we just don't have the staff to vet them. We're doing other things like filing lawsuits and trying to get information out to the world. And finally, my story keeps sending us your stories. As you saw at the beginning, they're wonderful. And maybe we can roll that again so that you get a chance to see it again as we, as we sign off here and some of you stay in chat. And of course, the donations. Thank you, thank you, thank you for whatever you can do. Those of you who have been supporting us all along, we are so grateful. Obviously, we need... We need everything that you can put our, in our way. This is an important fight. It's critical. It is the doctor-patient relationship. So thank you for being there, for being with us, and for understanding it. And that's it. Thank you for watching. Thank you, Paul, for what you are doing for doctors. We will see you all. Stay well, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>